Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan. And this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face-Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high-energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues. Sports, entertainment, politics, nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome to another edition of the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio. Of course, we have Tina Martini of McDermott, Will, and Emery, and Rich Lenkoff from Downey and Lenkoff. I'm your moderator, Brian Burrow, and we start with what will likely be a running conversation throughout the 2024 election season, the 14th Amendment, and the legal arguments surrounding President Donald Trump as he looks for the presidency this fall and whether he should be allowed on ballots. We're joined by election law experts at Loyola Marymount University Law School, Professor Justin Levitt, and Indiana University Law Professor and 14th Amendment expert Gerard Magliocca. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks. Nice to be here. So, Professor Levitt, let's start with you. Uh, obviously, yesterday, uh, all of us in the legal geek world were riveted. I told I was on a couple of radio shows. I told them that this was the Super Bowl for legal geeks yesterday, right? This was uh, incredible uh, viewing of really one of the most significant Supreme Court uh, arguments uh, of all time, I would I would posit. Um, and, you know, let's start by asking you, did anything surprise you from what you heard from the justices yesterday? I know there was a couple of surprising questions uh, that I took away, but let's get your perspective on what was the most surprising thing you heard yesterday from uh, the, the justices? Well, I think that most of the public was probably surprised by how little focus on the facts uh, underlying the allegations that were on, on whether former President Trump did it or didn't do it. I'll say to, to the legal geek world, that wasn't particularly surprising for me. Um, I, most of the questioning was uh, relatively predictable. I will say Justice Jackson in particular seemed to lock on to one part of uh, the case, and that is that in this long list of officials who were disqualified by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the president isn't explicitly cited there. Um, and I was a bit surprised to hear that much attention to that argument coming from her. But otherwise, what we heard was the Supreme Court, I think, uh, looking for a way to decide this case without getting into the facts. And I think you heard nine justices each finding their own paths uh, into how they prefer to do that. Professor Maglioka, picking up on one of the points that Professor Levitt raised, why is it that only one justice, that was Justice um, Jackson, mentioned the insurrection, right? You would think that a case about the 14th Amendment and whether uh, Trump was an insurrectionist that should prevent him from being on the ballot, um, that would have been more, you know, more thoroughly discussed. But we only really heard one question about it. Well, because whatever they would say about that would be a lot more controversial than to talk about the more technical aspects of jurisdiction or sort of whether Section 3 does or doesn't apply in terms of who can enforce it. Um, so I think while it is probably the most honest way to decide the case is to say either you think that he didn't engage in insurrection and thus is should be able to serve or he did and should not, right? I, I think it's it's understandable that if there's a way to decide the case without having to talk about that, they were going to go to that first, maybe maybe grab for it first. And uh, and that that's that's what they did. I mean, Professor Levitt, were you surprised at all by the fact that I mean, again, with everything that's been said so far as a backdrop, were you surprised at all 
that some of the more liberal justices um, didn't seem to be any, um, I guess, less critical or less or, or, or less tough in their questions than some of the more conservative justices? Oh, I think they were all quite tough. It's just they may have been tough in unexpected directions. Um, so I, I think that the all of the justices are honestly grappling with what this provision of the Constitution permits, um, not in terms of the substantive conduct, again, but in terms of how we come to a decision about whether someone is disqualified because they've engaged in an insurrection. That's a thorny topic, and it's not one that the courts have ever weighed in on before directly here. It's not one the Supreme Court has ever weighed in on. Um, there have been lots of other actors making lots of other decisions over time, including uh, a lot of attention to some circuit cases from the mid-19th century. Um, but the Supreme Court's never touched this, and that's a real thorny problem for the court, and one where, as Professor Magliocca said, uh, I think all of them preferred to focus, including the more liberal justices. They may each have very distinct thoughts about whether President Trump did it or didn't do it. But before you get there, you got to decide who gets to decide. And that was uh, something that, that they were obviously grappling with. Well, speaking of the liberal justices, Elena Kagan, Professor Magliocca asked really the question that I think was on a lot of people's mind, and she condensed it to a very simple concept. Why should we let one state, Colorado, govern, uh, dictate who is president of all of the states, not just that one state? Um, I was a little surprised that she went in that direction in one respect, but to Professor Lovett's point, I mean, that's really what's uh, at issue here, right? And, and you know, to many, it's troubling that the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, is allowing these political discussions to seep into what should be a constitutional argument. Is it naive, my question is, is it naive to think that the Supreme Court should just decide this case based on the technical reading, textual reading of the 14th Amendment, or inevitably, is this such a large question that they're going to take into account how this affects the election and our democracy? Well, going back to the question of who decides, Right. The issue really is who should decide whether the states can go their own way, Congress or the court. Right. So in other words, Congress can come in and say, look, you know, we're going to have one national standard or one process to do this. And in fact, after the Colorado decision, a bill was introduced by a group of Senate Republicans to do just that because uh, they were unhappy with the decision. Uh, now, the thing is, if there is no such legislation, then should the court say, well, but we're, we're going to step up and do it ourselves, right, by reading into Section 3 some structural, unwritten kind of principle that says that states cannot do this for presidential candidates. Um, so, look, I, they may think that they're, uh, they're, they're looking at the risks or concerns, and, you know, they were all valid in terms of, well, what Different states can do different things and they might reach different decisions based on the same set of facts. And isn't that going to be confusing? And isn't Texas going to try to kick Biden off the ballot if uh, the Colorado kicks Trump off the ballot? But the question is, is that their call to make or is the answer? Well, that's the setup we have. You know, states run presidential elections. So they didn't they didn't seem satisfied with that. Right. And you could describe that as political. But I mean, I think you could also describe it as sort of an idea that, look, there are certain things we don't let states do, and maybe this should be one of them. It's just that the, the, the latter part of why that's the case on its own is, is not clear. Right. And, and isn't it, 
isn't it hypocritical, Professor Levitt, isn't it hypocritical for a right-leaning Supreme Court, we've got a 6-3 majority in most issues, to suddenly argue that states like Colorado shouldn't have the right to seat their electors and decide who's on their ballot when a bedrock principle of conservatism seems to be let the states decide on their own. It seems convenient that the Supreme Court here is going to decide that issue in favor of the federal government, just like they did in Bush v. Gore. Many would argue that they said, let's not let the state of Florida decide. Let's, in this one occasion, not advocate for states' rights. To many, that seems like a hypocritical hypocritical position for a conservative-leaning court. Well, and you heard the Colorado voters advocate at the court yesterday explain something that I think is exactly right. Colorado's not trying to decide who gets to be president for the rest right. of the country. Colorado's trying to decide whom its presidential electors down the road have the opportunity to vote for or not. And that doesn't force Texas into doing anything. It doesn't force Michigan or Wisconsin or New York or any other state into doing anything else with its electors. Um I, I agree with Professor, Professor Maglioka that that Justice Kagan and others seemed to wrestle with this notion of what do we let the states do in this nationalized context? I'm less convinced that that's going to end up the ultimate answer, that no state gets to make its own rules here um, or that no that states have to wait for Congress. There are other, quote unquote, off ramps uh, for the court to decide this on procedural grounds, still without getting to the merits of did the former president do it or not do it? Um, is he disqualified or isn't he disqualified? And I'm inclined to think that even though the notion of individual states deciding on presidential candidates looms large in the background, the court's not going to preclude individual states from having any say in who's on their ballots. Right now, today, we already have states coming to different decisions about whether extremely minor candidates who aren't who don't stand any realistic chance of winning at all, but were born in other countries and aren't natural born citizens are on the ballot or off the ballot. And that's not a danger to democracy to have the states deciding these things in slightly different ways. So I think the court, while that's unquestionably in the back of their mind, I don't know that the decision we'll get is states don't have a role here. So Professor Maglioka, when do you think we're going to see a decision in this case? That's another thing that's being hotly debated. Do you think that we're going to see a decision by Super Tuesday? Probably. I mean, first of all, if they are able to get, say, eight or nine votes for a particular decision, it'll go quicker than if you had a split court or a lot of separate opinions. Second, I mean, I think that they would like to get it done before the bulk of the primaries happen, even though you might say, well, look, we it's it's not there isn't really a contested race so much at this point for the Republican nomination. I mean, there is sort of, but not really. And so maybe if they if they miss that by a week, it's not a big deal. But I think they'll try to wrap it up within a month or so. Professor Levitt, do you think regardless of the decision that's made and it seems you, know, you can't always tell how a decision is going to go based on the orals, but I think you know, it seems clear what's going to happen in this case. The only question is whether it's eight or nine zero. But do you think regardless of the decision that uh, comes down here, this course is going to kick the can down the road? Because, look, one of the debates is whether the 14th Amendment prohibits an insurrectionist from holding office. That's what the word says. And one of the arguments in favor of Trump is that he's not holding office. He's merely running for office. And the exact words of the 14th Amendment say nothing about running for office. So Let's assume they find against Colorado in favor of Trump. 
Let him run. He wins the Republican nomination. He's running for president. He can even win before another round of lawsuits is brought, right? Because then the argument is, well, he's now going to hold office. Putting everything else aside, that seems to be kicking that, that part of the can down the road. Well, and as compelling as the textual arguments may be, there's also no doubt that the Supreme Court is looking ahead to what's coming if they decide that now isn't the right time or Colorado isn't the right place to decide these issues. Um, so this is one place where I don't I don't know that I'd call it politics in this in the partisan sense, but there is absolutely no question that in the back of every justice's mind is the social cost of allowing this to continue in an unsettled or less settled fashion right up until the election or even after the election, um, as you say, to, to, you know, Inauguration Day, if it comes to that. Um, I also want to point out that there is a big interceding factor here about whether we ever have to make that decision on Inauguration Day, and that's the voters of the country, right? Ultimately, uh, I think that as these things play out, that the people are going to get to weigh in before the courts come up with a final definitive answer. And although these provisions of the Constitution were meant to protect the people uh, from insurrectionists, I think that ultimately, if we have a republic that we are going to keep, we, the voters, all also have a role in deciding who we want as our chief executive. And I think that ultimately, just in terms of timing, you'll see that decision before you see the courts taking a stand that takes this away from the public or not. Uh, yeah, that's a really interesting point. Professor Magluca, you're, you're both our constitutional scholars. Professor Magluca, you're, I know, um, you know, one of your focuses is the Constitution and its historical underpinnings. You know, do you think this is just an example of trying to apply something that was written in a whole different age, a whole different era, a whole different set of circumstances to modern times? And perhaps it just wasn't contemplated back when the 14th Amendment was, was, was written that this would be the situation in 20, 24 and beyond. What do you think of that? Well, I guess I have a slightly different take on it, which is that I think anytime the court interprets a provision of the Constitution for the first time, they always do it narrowly. Mm -hmm. It's new. They're a little they don't know. They're a little scared. Uh, so let's let's be take a baby step, basically. Right. And and this is the first time they're interpreting this provision. You can see the same thing happened after the 14th Amendment was ratified when they had to deal with the other provisions for the first time. They tended to go with a very narrow reading at first. Uh, so I think actually the lesson is, well, the first time is always uh, a little uh, sort of incremental. And the trouble here is that, well, that, of course, means that you're really not getting at a lot of what's underlying the case. So it's an understandable reaction, and, and you can find lots of historical precedent for that. Of course, you might say the interpretations of the 14th Amendment after the Civil War that were incremental or baby steps were also in baby steps in the wrong direction. And uh, this one, one might say, is the same thing. Right. So I think I think that's more what we can learn from it rather than whether, you know, how they're supposed to apply something to a different set of facts. Professor Levin, what did you make of the actual arguments by the attorneys, right? I mean, it's, there's millions of people quarterbacking this uh, the next day and second-guessing the performance of the attorneys. Not a position that any attorney wants to be in, but, hey, that goes with the job. So, you know, what I took away was the attorney for Trump did actually a really good job, I thought. You know, I think it was his fifth time arguing before the court. Very polished, uh, really did well with the hypotheticals, I thought. 
Um, and I thought in particular, one thing that was good that he did was acknowledge that January 6th, I think he used three adjectives. He said it was criminal, it was violent, um, and it was um, unfortunate, something, something to that effect. You know, he didn't say it was an insurrection, obviously, but he said it was a riot. I think coming out and acknowledging that was very purposeful. And I think it was it was very smart of him to do that rather than arguing that Trump had, you know, that this was just uh, a gathering, that there was nothing wrong. I thought that was a very good move by him. In contrast, you know, the attorney for Colorado, who was arguing for the first time before the high court, I thought he struggled with some of the hypotheticals. We saw Gorsuch, who is his former employer, reprimand him to stick to the hypothetical. Listen again. I mean, it's a very difficult position to be in. But what was your thoughts on uh, on, on their performances? Uh, I, I agree with your summary, more or less. I thought that um, unlike some of uh, the former president's other attorneys in other fora, I thought uh, his counsel in the Supreme Court yesterday was very measured, very strategic. Uh, as you say, he he conceded quite a bit that didn't really impact his case, including acknowledging uh, with quite a bit of candor which arguments were stronger and which arguments were weaker. Obviously, he's happy to have a, a decision in his favor on any of the grounds. Um, but he pointed out to the justices where there were pressing arguments that were maybe less strong than other arguments he thought were better. Um, that clearly seemed to win him some favor with the court in his candor. And I think it's a it's a good technique. It's a good appellate strategy to 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 arrive at an oral argument with a sense of wanting to help the justices understand your position rather than fighting with them. Or argument is never really argument if you're doing it right. Um on the other side, I thought that uh, the attorney for the Colorado voters, I thought, also acquitted himself well. It's true that uh, some of his responses drew some testy exchanges from some of the justices. Um, I happen to think that some of the justices were trying to uh, pin him down in ways that were not actually trying to understand the question, but but presented facts uh, or presented a predicate that weren't accurate and that the attorney didn't want to concede and shouldn't have conceded. Um, so. I understand why he pushed back a little bit. That certainly did not win him uh, style points with the justices. But I thought he made his arguments fairly clearly and persuasively. And ultimately, it, most of the time at oral argument, either the attorneys have a chance to lose the argument they were already winning, or they're really helping the justices grapple with some difficult decisions where the justices haven't made their mind up. And I think both attorneys gave the justices reason. Uh, to to further clarify and refine their thoughts on how the case would go. I don't think either one lost the argument yesterday. Professor Mike Luca, what's your take on that, um, on how those attorneys did? And 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 what, if any, lessons would you convey to your students on, on argument uh, based on what we heard yesterday? Well, the first thing is being in the courtroom, I mean, even before Trump's lawyer had sat down, it was clear that this what the court was going to do. So there was almost a thought, when um, Mr. Murray got up that, uh, wow, he's going to get pulverized and like, good luck, you know, I mean, so I mean, I think he did as well as he could under those circumstances. But I mean, it wasn't it, it was already clear. And I can also imagine, I mean, I, obviously I've never argued in the Supreme Court before, but, you know, you're all geared up to argue and then you hear the first side of the case and you realize, oh, OK, this is not looking good. And it, it has to be a little demoralizing. So I think then to sort of soldier on is 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 also is, is hard. Um, you know, lessons for students. Look, I do agree that 
being candid and acknowledging weaknesses in your position is good in part because sometimes it's just surprising. You know, people just don't expect that. So you're kind of disarming them a little bit if you do that. Um, I also think that uh, sometimes there are some justices or judges who are they have a particular habit or uh, pattern that you just have to know going in. And one thing about Justice Gorsuch, for example, is he's very keen on this idea that if I ask you a hypothetical, you you can't change the hypothetical. I mean, we've seen that over and over again in Supreme Court arguments where he basically scolds a lawyer for not sticking to my hypothetical. Right. So, I mean, it's sort of like, OK, even if you want to resist a hypothetical, you got to at least figure out some way to maybe cut short that conversation, because then it doesn't it doesn't look good. Right. If if basically you're being scolded. Uh, and, and and so maybe that's the best you can do because I mean, you can't really concede the point of the of the premise. But, um, yeah, that would be another lesson I might give. Professor Lever, what about you or your students? Did uh, did you take some time uh, and let your students watch? I know lots of uh, law students around the country were, were watching this. Uh, how how would you uh, take any lessons from yesterday and impart those to your students? I think that the clearest lesson for students is that oral argument is a chance to explain and a chance to inform and maybe most important, a chance to listen. Uh, so one of the things that the advocates really did was they listened not only to the actual questions that were asked, but to the premises behind the question and tried to present their case in a way that responded to the justices. When it's done most effectively, oral argument really is helping a group of distinguished, very smart jurists understand your position better. Sometimes, you know, they're never going to agree with you, but you at least would want to, you know, I think uh, Justice Kagan as the Solicitor General um, offered a response to a question before she was on the court. Uh, when asked if she meant X or Y, she said, do you mean if I'm going to lose, would I rather lose narrowly? Yes. Uh, so sometimes, you know, it's not going to go your way, but you still have an opportunity to inform and educate the justices or the judges about how your position makes sense and how what they may be considering maybe doesn't um, or help them grapple with real parts of the problem that they're struggling with. And uh, I think you saw at various points yesterday, um, the advocates do exactly that in a way that was that, that's really a good model to follow. Many students think that they're job in an oral argument is to um, present their case as forcefully as possible, despite the judge. And that's really never the goal. Uh, it's to explain to the judge why you're right. And the other side happens to be, you know, well-meaning, but wrong. Well, professors, I'd like to take a second to just ask your opinion. I mean, obviously, we've been seeing some really important cases coming out of the Supreme Court over the last year or two. And this term is going to be another super important term with this case, as well as some others. Um, we'd love to hear from both of you on, you know, your previews of what you think we can expect for the remainder of this term. Professor Magliocco, would you like to answer that first? Well, I mean, the first thing we have to find out is, is the court going to take up the question of presidential immunity from criminal prosecution or not, which will be presented to them on Monday? And just the fact of them taking it would mean that the criminal trial, that particular criminal trial, would be pushed off and maybe won't happen at all. So, I mean, maybe it's less about what they decided or whether they decide they want to decide. Um, 
I think the rest of the docket here, the, the most significant cases, at least for this term, seem to be about administrative law and doctrines that I'm, you know, a, a little less familiar with because I don't teach administrative law. But, you know, they, but that would work a significant change in some longstanding precedent like Chevron. Uh, they also have a Second Amendment case where they're going to probably cut back a little bit on what they've said previously about the sec- scope of the Second Amendment or the way in which we're to understand how Second Amendment challenges should go forward. So I think the the blockbuster case basically is the one that they may decide to take up, not because there's any real doubt that they would say that a former president can be prosecuted sometimes, but because if they were just to decide to take it, that would have a significant political effect. So that's probably the most important thing to watch for. Professor Levitt, I lifted is exactly the same. So you you saw me nodding along with Professor Magliocca. Those three cases, including one, you know, whether they decide to take a case or not, um, plus the changes in the administrative state and the Second Amendment case on the docket, I think are all incredibly important. Every case the Supreme Court takes is important. Sometimes, I mean, it's incredibly important to the litigants. Uh, Sometimes the case is important to determine methodology, even if it's a relatively narrow decision one way or another. Um, but those three cases are are ones that are particularly on the radar, not only for me, but for uh, lawyers and members of the public across the country. There's very little chance, though, isn't it, that they don't take the immunity case and also don't decide that uh, Trump does not enjoy immunity from cr- criminal prosecution. That's, you know, let's give one to Trump. Or let's give one to Biden. I I agree that there's no way that they find that a former president has immunity for anything even approaching an official act. And by the way, the particular context in which the case arises, I don't think any of those acts are official. You know, I've, I've had the chance to work for the White House and there is a big divide between what you do as a private citizen running for office or running for re-election uh, and what you do with the, the presidency and none of the criminal acts of which, uh, Trump is accused, have anything to do with the presidency. Um, so I completely agree with Professor Magliavuka. I, I don't think there's any chance that the court grants immunity. I would be a little bit surprised if they decided to take the case at all because of that. Um, so I don't know which four justices would vote to hear the case, if only because the D.C. Circuit's opinion was really clear. And I don't think there's a different answer coming under any path from the Supreme Court. So I'm I, I don't know that I'm betting on it, but I'm mildly expecting that the court just takes a pass on this case because the D.C. Circuit effectively got it right. Professors Gerard Magliocca and Justin Levitt, we appreciate the discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you. Glad to be with you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina 
is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Moving along on the Legal Face-Off podcast, Kenneth Smith, the 58-year-old convicted killer, was put to death in Alabama last month. But it was the way he was put to death that spurred a lot of discussion about executions in America. We're joined by Deborah Denell, Arthur A. McGivney Professor of Law, founding director of the Neurosiren Science and Law Center at Fordham University School of Law, and author of a chapter called Six U.S. Execution Methods and the Disastrous Quest for Humaneness. Professor, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So, Professor, a couple of weeks ago, Kenneth Smith became the first person to be executed by nitrogen hypoxia when the state of Alabama administered that procedure to him. That followed a prior effort to execute him by lethal injection, which failed terribly when the state could not find a vein. Alabama is one of 11 states allowing death row inmates to choose their type of execution. What is the logic behind leaving that decision to them? Well, there are several reasons to leave the decision to the inmate. And in some states, it it's up to whether or not lethal injection is available. Uh, first of all, I mean, just pragmatics, uh, you know, hit Alabama, right? inability to get drugs or just having this really terrible record of lethal injections. Uh, the, the second reason is, is simply because of uh, uh, the fact that some states just want an alternative of some sort. And the, this is just the kind of compromise that they've come up with. So the state called this a textbook ex- execution that differs from the account of many eyewitnesses who describe really a gruesome scene of um, Smith rise, you know, writhing against uh, his uh, restraints and his head bobbing, uh, taking a total of, I think, nine minutes. Uh, sounds uh, like it perhaps could violate the prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment protected by the Constitution. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think it it should violate the Eighth Amendment Cruel and Unusual Punishments Clause. I mean, this is not what was expected to happen. Uh, the state of Alabama said that he would die within seconds, and he did not. Uh, it clearly didn't proceed as was intended, and there were uh, there was a consistency among witnesses uh, describing a scene in which Smith suffered and grimaced, and uh, and so I think that. You know, those fit the criteria for what should constitute a cruel execution. Let's just pick up on that for one second, if I can, because, you know, proponents of the death penalty and perhaps some surviving uh, uh, surviving members of victims might argue that, yes, inherently there's going to be some suffering uh, involved in uh, administering the death penalty. That's part of the process. What's wrong with that argument? Actually, there's nothing wrong with that argument. Uh, 
the Eighth Amendment doesn't ensure a painless death or an absolutely humane death. We all recognize that death involves some sort of pain. It's just the nature and the degree of that pain. So this went way over what uh, was expected and what the state of Alabama itself had predicted. So, Professor, given that many states are not abolishing the death penalty, do you think that more states are going to follow suit with nitrogen hypoxia? And why is that a preferred method, especially given what we know happened a couple of weeks ago? Why would that be a preferred method over a firing squad, which is mostly impervious to failure? Yeah, I mean, that's a terrific question. I mean, first of all, states are desperate to execute. And we've seen that over a century and a half. I, and I have, have spent, you know, at least 30 years sort of documenting uh, what states do when they want to execute. They'll go to any method. Uh, you know, at first, it seems that they genuinely do want a humane method because that's the best way for them to execute somebody. Uh, but when that method starts to become problematic, they just stick with it. Uh, we have stuck with lethal injection for over 40 years now. And it's only because that it, there's been so much litigation that states have started to look at another method of execution. It's unclear what they're going, how many states are going to try to adopt nitrogen hypoxia, but it's also very clear that this is a highly problematic method of execution. Uh, Professor, the United States is in the top six of countries that uh, execute people. That's according to, uh, I believe, a 2022 Amnesty International study. Uh, some of the others that share that top six distinction are countries like China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, obviously countries with uh, rather abhorrent civil rights and human rights records. Uh, why is the United States alone in the Western world uh, on this list? And the United States is certainly isolated from other Western countries with respect to the death penalty. First of all, I just want to emphasize, of course, we have 50 states. They all have different personalities and proclivities. The state of Michigan actually abolished the death penalty before any European state, uh, European country did. So, uh, so we see that kind of huge variability. Only five states last year in 2023 executed anyone. So we're really talking about a small number uh, of states that, that execute. Uh, but for those states, this is part of their identity. And uh, and and it, there's a great deal of emotionality associated with it. And uh, it's going to take a long time in particular states probably to ever get rid of the death penalty. So, Professor, as Ryan mentioned in the introduction, you recently wrote a chapter. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you wrote? Okay, I in that in that chapter, I talk about the fact, first of all, that the United States has six different methods of execution. As far as I know, we're the only country in the world that has so many different methods. Number two, they have all failed. Uh, we have gone from one method of execution to the next to the next. And uh, so when you start looking over a century and a half of the patterns of all these botched executions, these, these failed procedures, they have very similar trajectories to them. And we clearly haven't learned a lesson. The one theme that ties all of this together over a century and a half is states will do, will 
want to continue the death penalty, and they'll do so at any cost, even using a method that they know is is uh, failed and that can create human suffering. Last question here on Legal Faceoff, Professor. Despite what you said about failed methods of execution, besides lots of data um, over many years of you know victims' families not feeling any different between life sentences and executions, and besides, of course, the most obvious issue, that being wrongful convictions. We've seen lots of um, death penalty cases overturned with uh, the advance of DNA evidence and other evidence. We've seen lots of that here locally in Illinois. Um, why is there still this lust, for lack of a better term, for the death penalty in this country? I think there's this quote, lust for the death penalty in at least certain states in this country because it's become such a hotbed political issue. And uh, and if it weren't that, uh, the the public wouldn't be drawn into this kind of quagmire uh, that, that we have here. Uh, secondly, not all v- victims' families want uh, the the perpetrator to die. We've seen many instances of victims just saying, let's just stop this death. That's not something they particularly want. And we there's very little coverage of, of something like that. So it does become a political issue that district attorneys and other kinds of politicians play up in an effort to try to get elected. And I think if that motivation didn't exist, we'd see a very different kind of country and a very different kind of application of the death penalty. Professor Deborah Denno, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Welcome back to Legal Faceoff. Shuba Ghosh is a Crandall Melvin Professor of Law and Director of the Syracuse Intellectual Property Law Institute at Syracuse University College of Law. He's an expert in understanding intellectual property law, and he joins us this week to discuss the legality of explicit online images. Of course, AI has introduced us to this whole new world on this issue. Professor Ghosh, thank you for jumping on with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Professor, the laws surrounding the possession and distribution creation of sexually explicit images is rapidly evolving. What is the current state of the law regarding such images? Well, it depends on what kind of images you're talking about. I mean, basically sexually explicit images, uh, unless they're obscene, are protected by the the First Amendment. Um, So generally they can be created. If you're talking about things like child pornography, that's illegal. It's illegal federally. It's illegal in every state. If you're talking about um, revenge porn or uh, unconsensually recorded uh, acts of intimacy, acts of sex, uh, those are illegal in in most states and in Washington, D.C. If you're talking about um, things like deep fakes, things like uh, um, unauthorized uses of somebody's image that are embedded in in a pornographic or sexually explicit material, those could be protected by various types of privacy laws, but that's also where the law is sort of evolving right now uh, in terms of trying to protect individuals from having their images used in these inappropriate ways. So for some of these uh, images that are, in fact, illegal, like trial pornography that you mentioned, what should victims do and what should people who receive those images unwittingly do? Uh, if you're a victim, it's it's, uh, it's it's unfortunate and sad. I mean, call the police. I mean, it, I mean, a lot of this is tied into things like sexual trafficking. 
And so when you're talking about victims, you're talking about a very broad, uh, broad category of, of illegality, broad, you know, broad category of law enforcement that's involved. If you receive these images and they were un, unconsented, you didn't ask for them, then you might have some recourse to report it to the to the police, uh, to local law enforcement. Uh, if it's being distributed through some social media, uh, you know, Facebook, uh, X, whatever it might be, then you can you can report their ways to report it through those platforms so that you don't get it again. And also so that the platform managers can hopefully look into it. That's another part of the legality of this in terms of what the obligations are on social media sites to police these types of images. So, Professor, to that point, obviously, the issues that we're talking about have been terrible issues for a while, but obviously between the Internet and various social media platforms that essentially facilitate um, the creation and dissemination of these of these types of images. Mm-hmm. Against that backdrop, how are various social media platforms addressing the posting and sharing of these images? And what more do you think they should be doing beyond what they're doing right now? Well, I think right now it's basically a reporting system. There are ways in which you can report these types of unwanted images and the social media sites have mechanisms to take them down and maybe track them. Uh, the difficulty is really trying to you know, get at the source of these images and they proliferate very quickly. They're often occurring uh, outside the U.S., and so it makes it even more difficult to track down and actually stop the people who are, who are creating these types of images. But in terms of uh, the, the local, if I use that word here, right, in terms of you know somebody in the U.S. who's access, accessing these sites and getting these unwanted images, it's largely a regime of uh, reporting and then taking down and trying to block these these accounts that are they're generating the sites. Professor, you've used terms like revenge porn and deep fakes. Um, how do those differ? Is there a difference between them? What does revenge porn mean from a legal perspective? Yeah, revenge porn has been around for a long time and maybe been around since uh, since it's mankind. I mean, basically, revenge porn is the, you know, the, the generic term or the general term for uh, unconsensual recording of sex acts or intimate acts that are then disseminated uh, without the consent of the persons in, in, in the in the image. And so the idea behind revenge porn is that it was created in order to retaliate or, you know, it depends upon what your view of porn is. But basically, maybe some all, all porn maybe has sort of a retaliatory or, or hurtful component to it. But uh, but generally, if it's consensual porn, uh, we, we tolerate that, we accept that. Revenge porn is where somebody is using those images to hurt somebody. A deep fake is one where uh, the images are um, basically the 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 underlying uh, video or the underlying uh, photograph or whatever the graphic is, uh, is, is constructed. So somebody is able to uh, generate the image of a celebrity or just an ordinary person using, uh, you know, uh, AI technology or other types of technology and then embedding them in, uh, you know, sexual uh, contexts. We, we, we know there's some high profile lawsuits lately uh, by celebrities trying to, uh, you know, uh, put a stop to these deep fakes. But why isn't deep fakes? Why aren't deep fakes protected by the First Amendment? It would seem like that would be it could be an expression of free speech. I mean, albeit, you know, uh, unsavory and disgusting to many people. Uh, why is it not an expression of, of uh, free speech? Right. So it, it generally, the First Amendment does play a role. I think the simple answer to your question is uh, 
Some of the deep fakes involve invasion of privacy or invasion of one's publicity. So, uh, for example, if you're a celebrity whose image is being used without the permission in some sort of a deep fake, that's a violation of that person's right of publicity. And generally, there is First Amendment protection for the use of a celebrity's image. But typically, we we need to have some sort of the use of that image has to have some sort of a, a public concern or it's newsworthy or and it doesn't have any sort of harmful effect. But but you're right. The First Amendment is an issue uh, in terms of how far we want the First Amendment to go. I mean, uh, the First Amendment issues have come up in the revenge porn context, uh, but the harmful uh, effects of rent revenge porn balance out any free speech interests. And the same thing might be true for deep fakes. Now, I should also add for deep fakes, you talked about how child pornography is uh, is illegal. But there was a case from, you know, about, I guess it must be 22 years ago uh, that went to the U.S. Supreme Court having to do with an early type of defect in in, in, in terms of uh, depictions of children in, in, in sexual settings, but they weren't actually children or the images were uh, were animated or the images were, as we'd call now, sort of AI generated. And the, the Supreme Court said it, it's not if, you, if you're not actually using children, it's not child pornography. And therefore, that could be protected by the First Amendment. So that that case might have some implication for these deep fake cases, though. The right of publicity for celebrities might uh, might also be the trumping card for the uh, uh, for the First Amendment there. You know, you know, in other words, it, would, it would counter the First Amendment protections. So, Professor, last question here on Legal Faceoff. What advice do you have for parents? who are trying to protect their children? And what do you think lawmakers and the industry um, can do to better address these issues beyond what's already been done? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the concept of stranger danger, but now, you know, there's strangers lurking in all sorts of media. So, I, I, you know, part of it is really trying to monitor in the house how uh, access to social media is obtained by children, what what their accounts are, who their friends are, you know, things like Roblox, who exactly is on the accounts, you know, online gaming, what exactly are they accessing? So, you know, for parents, it's like with any uh, any supervision of children with, with respect to, to to media or, you know, just in the playground, you, you really have to watch closely. Professor Ghosh with Syracuse University College of Law. Thank you so much for the conversation today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey and Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. 
In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Continuing with the Legal Faceoff podcast, we move into the legal grab bag, and we're joined by Matt Liller, partner with KPM Law in Virginia and beautiful West Virginia. Matt, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And we have Gabe Roth, Executive Director of Fix the Court. Gabe, we appreciate you coming on. Always good to be on with you guys. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court is now considering the case presented by Colorado voters to keep former President Donald Trump off of the ballot in the state for his role in the January 6th Capitol attack. And a decision could determine not only if Colorado is able to do so, but it could set precedent for other states as well. Rich, there's a lot going on with Trump this week. Uh, He was also denied presidential immunity from an appeals court. What's your take on all of this? Just a couple things. You know, just remember just a few days ago when the immunity case was the biggest case we had to deal with. That seems like a quaint time. Oh, so long ago. It's like 48 hours ago. Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, we just talked about this, of course, with two esteemed professors, and we went through it extensively. We really want to get our guests in on this, uh, Matt, and particularly Gabe. Gabe, this is obviously your wheelhouse. But Tina, yeah, I think we covered it extensively. My feeling is that uh, there's no way in hell that the court will do anything but, um, you know, deny Colorado's attempts to kick him off the ballot. They will side with Trump. The only mystery remains is whether that's going to be eight or nine, nothing. I think the lone holdout based on yesterday's uh, orals might be Sotomayor, uh, but I think it might be unanimous. And again, I think they might, you know, do one for Trump on this case and then do one for Biden in the immunity case. We'll discuss that in a moment, but both, both big cases, the immunity case, I think, Relatively simple. There's no way I think that the highest court in the land is going to say that uh, presidents, ex-presidents are immune from prosecution for criminal offenses. Um, I think that's been you know, a well-established uh, idea for a long time. Why would Ford grant a pardon to Nixon, right, if Nixon wasn't subject to criminal prosecution? So I think this is a, uh, a layup uh, on that case, but uh, yesterday was really telling and Kind of a fun day for all the legal geeks in the world, Tina. Yeah, Rich, I completely agree with everything you've said. I think the professors, we had a very robust discussion on the 14th Amendment. I completely agree that the question is just how many justices are going to be in the majority. Um, You know, whether there's going to be one or two in the minority will be, you know, interesting to see. And I agree with you also on the immunity issue. I I do think that the court is looking at this as a bigger chessboard and um, there'd be no, I I just don't see them deciding on the immunity issue in Trump's favor. Um, And I think that's all the more reason why I think they're going to be as that they're going to narrowly define the issue for purposes of finding for him on the Colorado issue. Gabe, fix the court. Lots of different takes I know you have, but one take we haven't covered earlier on the show was something in your wheelhouse because you've written extensively uh, on this show. You've discussed the need for a new code of ethics for the Supreme Court. Seemingly, they don't have the same rules that even the lowest you know, local circuit court judge has. To that point, why the hell was Clarence Thomas on this case yesterday? Shouldn't he have recused himself given that his wife 
was intimately involved with the insurrection. Talk to us about why he was still, uh, why we still heard from Thomas yesterday. Yeah, I, I think there's a very valid reason to think that this should have been heard before uh, eight justices instead of nine, with Th- Justice Thomas being the ninth. I mean, under federal law, it says a justice shall be disqualified uh, under the reasonable person standard. So if a reasonable person thinks that he or she, the justice, is biased, then they cannot, under federal law, hear the case. And that's, I think, we're all reasonable people here. I don't think any of us would uh, impute zero bias on the part of Justice Thomas. Unfortunately, there's no way to enforce that federal law other than impeachment and removal, which obviously is never going to happen. Uh, Further in federal law, it says that if there is a monetary aspect of the case uh, uh, for the justice's spouse, a justice shall recuse. And we don't know to the extent to which Jenny Thomas might have made money off of her insurrectionist uh, activities. So I think there are a lot of reasons for him to have stepped aside. But, you know, the thing that I've been saying is I would love for him to explain to the American people, just like Justice Alito did a few uh, months ago uh, in a different case called Moore versus U.S., um, explain to the American people why you're not biased, why you are impartial, and say, this is why I can hear this case and other January 6th case. Because, you know, it's not sour grapes. It's not racism. It's not some sort of view that, you know, Justice Thomas is, is you know, been tainted since 1991, since his confirmation. That's not it. It is there are real, uh, actual bias questions here, given what he said in public, what his wife said in public, what his wife has done in public. And it's a, just a real unfortunate case that there's no way to, to kick him off other than, you know, sort of the, you know, the, the, the judicial death penalty of impeachment and removal. So, yeah, I think that's a very valid uh, point to bring up. And it should have been a justices there the other day. Hey, one more quick question. Again, talking about fixing the court. And there's so many aspects of this case yesterday that, you know, we'd love to discuss with you. But, you know, how could the American public have confidence in the court? We know that polls show it's at an all time low when politics was involved in this case and, and is involved. I mean, it's it's inexorable with this case. And we heard yesterday about that, right? John Roberts, the chief justice, talked about, well, if a red state does this, then the blue state's going to, or the blue state does this to Trump, red state's going to do that uh, to Biden going forward. I mean, should those discussions be part of a discussion about the 14th Amendment, about the text of the Constitution? Why is that being discussed openly? Understanding that, Listen, everyone knows that uh, politics are involved in this, and this is uh, uh, dealing with the election of a president. So, um, you know, there's that. But it seems like that shouldn't be discussed in a case of this import. I I disagree, actually. I think that we need to uh, break down this wall or barrier or, or blockade in our heads, thinking that politics aren't intimately tied to the Supreme Court. Right. We elected a president in 2020 and that president. Uh, sorry, in 2016, and that president got three picks. We elected one in 2020. He got a pick. The, the Senate is obviously very partisan. It, to me, it's almost like, you know, we had this period in history where the court would sometimes, you know, give some meat to the conservatives and give some meat to the liberals. And, you know, for a lot of when we were growing up, you know, maybe Bush v. Gore was sort of the outlier. But, you know, in the in the 90s, it was a lot of sort of, you know, the left and right, even though it was a 5-4 court, it was, it was sort of even on, on the major issues. But I think that that is really more uh, the anomaly. I think throughout history, we've seen a court that's been in, either incredibly reactionary uh, in the early part of the 20th century or pretty liberal under the, the Warren court. So I think in infusing politics, you know, Politics is already infused into the Supreme Court. And I think that, you know, just sort of breaking down this idea that the court is, you know, above politics. And once we realize that that's not the case, then we can really think about politically based solutions to fixing 
how much power it has, whether it be jurisdiction stripping or term limits, or I mean, I don't support adding justices, but some people support adding justices, whatever it is, those are political solutions that I think need to be brought to bear to put the Supreme Court in its place. It is the Article Three court. It is not Article One or One A. It is the third most important branch, but it's acting like it's the most important and we need political solutions to fix it. So I, I don't think that, you know, John Roberts talking about real world implications, which was super weird because only a few states decide the election anyway. So he was like, well, that could, you know, mean only a few states. Like, that's happening anyway. But regardless, um, I think it's important to sort of, you know, uh, stop that myth. And, and I'm, I'm happy with them talking about the, the interactions between politics and, and uh, judicial decision making. Matt, what were your takeaways from yesterday? So I'm not going to be the one that gives the uh, the hot take soundbite on this one. So I think that both of these uh, both of these cases are the easy layups. Um, I, I think that the court's not going to do anything uh, completely polarizing. I think it's it's going to be uh, the, the court's not going to take away Trump's right to be on the ballots, uh, and I don't think they're going to find that he has immunity for those actions. Well, let's stay in Washington then. President Biden went on air in prime time after no criminal charges were brought against him for his possession and use of classified documents. Rich, what do you make of all this? You know, I don't think it's surprising that the special counsel, can, I mean, I, I guess there's a couple of surprising things. I mean, it's not surprising that they're not charging him, right? I don't think there's enough intent to charge him. Um, on the other hand, you know, we've seen prosecutions of Trump, um, uh, you know, Trump personnel, just based on a negligence standard for failing to act. So it seems a bit of a double standard there, number one. Number two, I was a little surprised at how this special counsel, Tina, went about uh, deciding or announcing not to charge. It was like, we're not going to charge him, not because he didn't possess the documents and maybe even possess them willfully, but we could not convince a jury of his guilt to the standard that we would need to because he's an old man. That's basically what they said. So it's kind of like, uh, oh, thanks for not charging me. Now you continue to ruin my political career. <laughs> Special counsels and prosecutors don't have to do that, right? Usually when you hear uh, that they're not charging, they end it there with a period. They don't say, but, you know, uh, he basically should not hold the highest office in the land because he can't put a sentence together. As evidence in this almost 500-page like document. 360-page report. Right, right. Uh, but there are examples that, you know, everyone's jumping on today uh, where, Biden could not, during his interview, remember the years that he began his vice presidency and ended his vice presidency. He cannot remember the year that his son, Bo, died, even though, you know, admittedly, he uses that as a reference a lot, more than, you know, more than uh, normal folks do. So he could not remember that. Um, and, you know, yesterday's press conference, he denied that. He said that he has a great memory. He says that it was in the middle, right after the uh, Israeli crisis, when, when Israeli was attacked. So he was a little distracted. But it's very disturbing, right? I mean, I think uh, anyone reading the report, anyone understanding what Biden is doing, anyone who listens to him say that he recently visited with the dead president of France, Francois Mitterrand, who's been died since 1996, uh, have some concerns. And that's one of the big takeaways from the special counsel report. Yeah, I agree, Rich. Um, you know, as you said, they didn't, the special counsel didn't have to go into all this detail, a 360 page report to come out the way that he did. And I think it was pretty, it was pretty destructive with respect to Biden's run. I mean, there were definitely things that the media took 
took and ran down the field with. And I'm sure that the what we've been hearing is is not over yet. I mean, it's just going to be on replay for a while. Okay, what's your take on on this one? Um, yeah, look, we we have we're in a we're in a bad situation where we've got two uh, elderly Americans uh, running for president in our or two major parties. I mean, assuming Trump wins the the nomination on that side, it's, it's not great. I mean, as someone who you know, I'm 41 years old, so I'm old enough to be president, but obviously not someone that would do it. But uh, you know, I would love for someone from my generation to to step up and and, and run. I think we're sort of past that point, unfortunately. Um, but you know, look, even someone like Eric Holder, who worked in the Justice Department, came out with a statement today saying that uh, Special Counsel Hur's statement about Biden's age was gratuitous. I think it was, you know, some sort of. Uh, you know, I, I want to look into this more and see how the, the sort of chain of command fell and it led to this uh, unnecessary comments. Um, but, yeah, those questions are going to linger so long as Biden and Trump's names are on the ballot. Well, we, we learned this week that a parent can be convicted of involuntary manslaughter for a mass shooting carried out by their child. Tina, this seems like a precedent setting decision by the jury in Michigan. Yeah, Ryan, um, it, it most certainly is. And this is the case involving Jennifer Crumbly, who's the mother of the Oxford High School shooter who killed four students and injured seven others back in November of 2021. She was found guilty of all four counts of involuntary manslaughter. She'll be sentenced in April and she faces up to 60 years in prison, 15 years for each count. And as you mentioned, you know, she's the first parent to go on trial in the U.S. in a mass school shooting carried out by their child. Now, her husband, James, is scheduled to begin his trial on March 5th, and he's also charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter. And among the uh, accusations is that he didn't get his son the necessary help for his mental health needs and also for purchasing the gun, which ended up being used in the shooting. The crumbly son was sentenced back in December to life in prison without parole. Now, we've covered this story a couple of times on earlier episodes of Legal Faceoff. And, you know, as we've talked about countless times with other cases, there were a number of things that came up during the trial that definitely were, were pretty impactful with respect to this verdict. Um, one of which was that Jennifer Crumbly was the last adult with the gun before her son used it in the mass shooting. Um, one of the counselors at the high school testified during the trial about how teachers had emailed him with concerns that they had about the shooter. Um, he also talked about the meeting that he had with with the parents the morning of the shooting, which is something that we did talk about previously on the show um, it had been prompted by a teacher finding violent drawings that he had made on his math assignment. Um, you know, what's also adding to the unfortunate intrigue here is that there are Facebook messages that Jennifer Crumbly had apparently um, exchanged with um, a, a gentleman who she actually went to high school with, who she ultimately had been having an affair with. And there were a number of these messages coupled with journal entries made by the shooter, um, which really, I think, swayed the jury a lot. And Jennifer Crumbly took the stand in her trial. She said some pretty um, compelling things, including saying that she wished that he had killed her and her husband rather than everybody else that he had killed and injured, um, and that she never thought that her son would put other people 
in danger. So, I mean, obviously, Rich, this is a story that's going to continue to unfold between um, her sentencing and then her husband's trial. Yeah, she was having sex with a guy, the firefighter in the Costco parking lot. You know how hard it is to find a spot in the Costco parking lot? I mean, that's that's why probably. But um, Matt, a couple, couple takeaways that I, I mean, I'm still trying to get my head around, Tina, what you said and what I heard from the jurors. I've been thinking about all week that this idea that swayed them was that she was the last possessor of the gun. Like, I don't know. It's not like some game of hot potato. What does that really matter? Like she bought the kid the gun, right? If someone else touched it last, what does that matter? She still, she was responsible for handing this troubled person uh, a gun. So that was a little strange. It shows you though, the lesson, Matt, I think as litigators and, you know, I try a lot of cases before juries is you never know what's going to sway a jury. You never know what they're going to latch onto. The evidence that you think is going to sway them rarely does. And they come back with something like that. That's a little, you know, confusing. The other thing that was a little confusing to me was, um, or not confusing, but very instructive actually was they said the other thing that persuaded them was her testimony that she wouldn't do anything differently, right? The key words were, were you, would you do anything differently? She said, in retrospect, no, that did it. Right. I mean, who in their right mind would say that four kids dying at the hand of their child wouldn't result in them changing anything about that? Oh, they wouldn't maybe, I don't know, not give the kid the gun, maybe lock it up, maybe get him some help, maybe warn someone. How could you say that you wouldn't have done things differently? That was really dumb. And it shows to Tina's point, Matt, the dangers of testifying. That's why most defendants in a criminal case don't testify because her own words sunk her. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're exactly right, Rich, as a litigator. We never know what the jury is going to latch on to. And also from a jury a jury trial perspective, you know, the the forward facing and the outward facing appearance and demeanor of the witness is very important in what the jury latches on to. And so, you know, that question that you just alluded to of would you do anything differently? No, I wouldn't do anything differently. You know, regardless of what the other evidence may have been, that may have just swerved some jurors perspective of her uh, and and said, well, you know what? We don't like her. Uh, and so, you know, we're going to to come back adverse to her. Uh, but Rich, as a civil litigator, uh, this case is is perhaps most interesting to me because, uh, you know, now it, it kind of opens up a question kind of like the this is kind of akin to the I guess the the doctor death case of, of yesteryear. Uh, you know, does this perhaps open up, you know, a, a gross negligent, a, a civil standard for gross, grossly negligent parenting? Uh, which, you know, perhaps could be a next step if if perhaps families uh, of of these victims bring civil suits. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's also there's already a suit. I think there's a suit against the school or there will be. There's some questions about immunity there for the school. But there's no question that, you know, um, certainly the finding of criminal liability makes it easier, I think, even though there are different standards to find civil liability. And for sure, we're going to see lawsuits by victims who claim that the parents should pay civilly because they didn't, they were negligent, right? Just like any other negligence case. So I think that's a great point. And remember too, the, the father of the Highland Park shooter also recently did some time uh, for his relation to giving a gun to his son. So, all right, uh, moving along, humans posing as AI. It's kind of like a Milli Vanilli situation for the modern era. This George Carlin modern stand-up routine just got a little weirder, didn't it, Tina? Yeah, Ryan. So the estate of George Carlin has filed a federal lawsuit against the comedy podcast Dudesy for an hour-long comedy special sold originally as an AI-generated impression of Carlin, but which appears to have actually been written by people. 
So the lawsuit claims that the special George Carlin, I'm glad I'm dead, presents itself as being created by an AI trained on decades worth of Carlin's material. And as listeners of Legal Faceoff know, we've been seeing more litigation in the AI area recently. Um, I'm certainly seeing it and dealing with it in my practice where intellectual property rights holders argue that using AI in this generative fashion um, can definitely create infringement. The proponents of AI argue on the other side of this that these types of works should be considered fair use. In this case, the estate claims that this AI training involves making unauthorized copies of Carlin's original works. And these original works are protected by copyright um, and the whole purpose of this is to try to create um, a connection or a semblance of Carlin's voice and Carlin's work in a way that essentially creates a market for the special. And the, and the estate claims that this is theft and detracts from the actual value of Carlin's works and harms his reputation. Interestingly, um, the latest is that the defendants claim that um, this special is actually not AI generated, but was written by humans. And from a legal perspective, it likely is the reason behind it is to try to increase the chances that their creative work or what they're claiming is a creative work will be considered a fair use. Um, the estate has responded that the lawsuit's going to move forward regardless of this additional information. Um, that was just brought to light. Um, so in any event, Kelly Carlin, who is the comedian's daughter, has told the media that, you know, what her feelings are on it, not surprisingly, that it's not her father, it's not his voice, it's not his material, and that she's concerned about what the public is going to perceive of her father in light of this particular special. So Rich, I mean, interesting case and Obviously, there are a number of these that are going on right now, and it's just going to continue as we go forward and continue to deal with these interesting AI issues. Yeah, you're right. These lawsuits are not ending, obviously, um, because the very nature of AI is that you're pulling content from everywhere, right? That you're amalgamating content uh, that's out there in the, uh, you know, out there in the world and, and using it. So uh, quite understandably, the IP owners of that content are going to seek you know, money uh, and penalties for uh, unlicensed use of it. In this case, uh, you know, the argument typically that we see in this case and others is a couple things. Number one, that it's protected by, you know, free speech. It's protected by fair use uh, in that it's modifying the content in some way. Uh, it's for educational purposes or satire. Um, and also that it's actually elevating the brand, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm a fan of George Carlin, but not many people are talking about George Carlin these days. So there's an argument to be made, Gabe, that by using it in this way, using uh, at most charitably can be considered, you know, a likeness of George Carlin. You're actually elevating his brand and making it more valuable. I don't know. I say sue their asses. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, George Carlin was one of a kind. And the first time that I heard about this, I'd assumed that his estate had worked with the comedy duo to produce this, right? I thought it was a creative way of, you know, enhancing his legacy and it was blessed by his family. turns out it wasn't. And one of the comedy duo is a former regular of How I Met Your Mother. So I'm sure he's got tons of residuals. So, you know, take them away from him. I don't care. You know, it's not George Carlin. It's not blessed by his family. It's not him. 
Um, you know, fair. I'm generally sympathetic to fair use arguments, but Harlan was one of a kind. And, you know, this uh, people want to find out about him. They can, you know, Google him and Richard Pryor and and, uh, you know, the the sort of the legend Steve Martin of that era. Um, and I think that that's that's uh, that needs to, to to stay in the in in you know in the up here and not sort of play in, down low with the with the new technology. How's it different though than you know someone going on uh, a show, uh, the Tonight Show or whatever you know show we're watching these days, SNL, and parroting a comedian? In this case, it happens to be George Carlin. But if you tune into SNL, you know any Saturday night they are parroting any number of celebrities, including people like George Carlin. So how Matt? How is this different than that? Maybe because they're making well, I, money. I think it's a little different because they're making money off of it. I think they were using his, you know, his actual images and names in the promotional materials just to make money off of it. And, and so I think that puts it in a different perspective than, you know, purely satire, obviously satire, uh, you know, a caricature, a wild caricature. So I think because they're making money off of it uh, and, you know, as Gabe mentioned, you know, he, he suspected that that you know, the, the, the estate and the family was working with these folks to, to put this on and promote it. I think that's what put it, puts it in a different category. I mean, who would impersonate a comedian? Who are these people? What's wrong? Sorry. Well, the big dumb cups are back in the news and Rich, it seems like SNL actually was onto something with their knocks on those Stanley cups a few weeks back. Yeah, that was incredible. From the makers of the big dumb hat came the, uh, Big dumb cup. This is the Stanley Cup that is all the rage. I mean, I don't get it. It's a metal cup, right? No different than uh, any other cup out there. But it is all over social media. There's videos of people stamp, you know, uh, stamping over, stampeding over each other to get <laughs> these cups once they're released. There's a Valentine's model that was released at Target, and they're gone and they're being resold. But um, uh, there's uh, inevitably, as we know, Tina, whenever there's something popular, what's the second most popular thing? A lawsuit, a class action lawsuit by those who are claiming that uh, these cups have lead in them. Um, and I just saw yesterday that uh, they're, they, they're, they're particular to bacteria, right? The mechanisms of them inside really lend themselves to bacteria. You know, one of my favorite sources for legal stories is Inside Edition. The great insight edition, Deborah Norville, and they did an expose just yesterday showing the levels of bacteria in these cups higher than your toilet seat, right? Um, and you know, the takeaway from the company was that you should thoroughly wash it with soap and water and dry it after every use. After every use, I mean, it's a it's a water container. What am I going to spend my life washing this damn thing? So maybe there is some merit to this class action, Tina. Yeah, Rich. I mean, the bacteria issue, the lead issue, I mean, we've just increased, have such increased awareness, you know, just taking the lead issue for an, for an example, we have such increased awareness, especially in light of learning about what the toxic effects can be of lead on people that I think when you're alleging that there is lead in a particular consumer product, um, obviously the devil's in the details. You need to know the, know the quantity and other things too. But, um, I mean, people are really sensitive to things like lead, which have been shown to poison people. So, um, my guess is unless the facts are just not as we think they are, that this may not go away all that easily, but who knows? I mean, obviously, as I said before, the devil's in the details and, you know, you, you scare people and you use words like lead, but there's a lot of things that we use and ingest every day that have 
some things that are bad for us. And it's all about like the quantity, the composition, et cetera. So Gabe, Sally recognizes and admits that there is some lead, uh, but plaintiffs say you should have told someone that before we file this last action lawsuit. Uh, who do you side with in this dispute? I mean, it, it's pretty simple to me. The lead is only uh, uh, exposed when the cup is broken. So when the cup is broken, throw it away, or I think they have lifetime warranties, get a new one. Similarly, if you're, I don't know, mercury thermometer breaks, you should probably throw it away and get a new one. And if your light bulb in your house breaks, don't put it on your kitchen floor and walk all over it. Throw it away and get a new one. This is sort of something that like, I just honestly don't understand why uh, people are getting so worked up about it. It's, you know, I'm a parent of a young child. I worry about lead too. But again, this is something that when it is working properly, has no lead uh, uh, exposure. So I I really, um, you know, I think, unfortunately, this is something that is giving plaintiff's lawyers a bad name. Matthew, plaintiff's attorneys need more of a reason to have a bad name. Oh, my gosh, they don't. They don't at all. And I'll share that I'm from rural West Virginia. And so Stanley cups mean something a little bit different to me. I think, you know, the big the big tall mugs that the coal miners take down in the mines. Uh, So that's that's when when Stanley cups came up, you know, several months ago. I'm like, really? People want those big old things. And it took me a little (laughs) while to realize what, what in the world was going on. I have to echo what Gabe said. Just use it as is. Stanley said there's no danger if you use it as is. Just use it as is. If it breaks, go get a new one. Ryan Burr, I can't believe we're talking on WGN Radio with the flag of the six-time winning Stanley Cup champion behind <laughs> you. Or we're not talking about the most obvious Stanley Cup out there, right? One that the Hawks are now chasing. Not not yeah. fruitful here, but not well. Yeah. <laughs> Different Stanley Cup. All right, uh, moving on. It's an iconic screen from the 70s, but the guy who did it says he stopped getting paid. Tina, you throw this in the back for us. Yeah, right. So a lot of us remember watching Soul Train back in the day. I really remember it um, as a young kid. I watched that as well as American Bandstand and Dance Fever. Um, you got a chance to see all these cool kids dancing and famous artists playing on the show. Well, obviously, we all remember that there are many iconic parts of the show, um, including that famous scream at the beginning of the show courtesy of a guy named Joe Cobb, who had actually met Don Cornelius back in the 1960s, who obviously Don Cornelius is the father of the Soul Train Enterprise. They were both working at a radio station in Chicago. Um, And Joe Cobb claims that it was while working at that radio station that he first voiced his now famous Soul Train scream that opened the show um, during its 35-year run. So that so the situation here is that Joe Cobb claims and is suing in federal court here in Chicago. He claims um, that he has not gotten any royalty checks since 2008. He's seeking at least seventy five thousand dollars in back royalties, and he's suing the current owners of the rights in the show. I mean, one of the complicating factors here is that um, after Don Cornelius sold the rights in the show a number of years ago, Um, The rights to the show have changed hands a few times. Um, He also claims, in addition to not getting royalty checks since 2008, that he actually never gave permission to use his voice and the scream. And that um, when he's tried to get information and particulars around it for several years from the Screen Actors Guild um, and others who are affiliated with Soul Train, that he consistently meets with a dead end. Um, He severed his relationship with SAG after Cornelius sold the rights in the show. 
Um, they SAG claims that they had asked for a release of rights in return for compensation. Cobb claims he never got that letter. He also claims that there were Soul Train Awards back about 10 years ago where he was asked for rights to use the scream. He didn't he didn't agree to it. Um, and they, he claims that they went ahead anyway, which in IP land we call intentional infringement. Um, and so any anyway, Rich, you know, obviously Soul Train is iconic. My guess is this is going to resolve itself out of court. But, um, you know, a more interesting case, given the I, the fact that it is an iconic show. Yeah, Matt, my takeaway here is a simple line. Everyone hates lawyers until you need one. Hire a lawyer at the beginning. Don't <laughs> don't hire a lawyer, you know, years later when you're being sued. I mean, there should have been this should have been worked out well in advance. Even though it was 1971, there was copyright laws, trademark laws back then. Uh, should have hired a lawyer so that we're not arguing about this. What, like 60 years later, similar to the Nirvana case that we've been covering, you know, covering now the kids alleging that he was taken advantage of. Well, get a contract, work it all out in advance. Tina knows that. Matt, you know that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think what's kind of telling here is that if he was receiving royalties up until 2008, you know, might that suggest there was something there that he was deserving of royalties? Uh, and, and, you know, if rights have changed hands since then, you know, again, Rich, to your point, get a lawyer, you know, who knows what was in those uh, agreements when they were changing hands as far as the original agreement, as far as, you know, what he might be entitled to compensation wise, if it were to change hands and what those contractual terms were. But I think if he was getting royalties up through 2008, it shows that he probably should have been getting them, but yes, get a lawyer. Gabe, you were too young for soul train. Not, well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I, I, I remember seeing it on television at some point. I don't remember how old or how young I was, but it's look, I mean, it's such a joyful show. It's such a, it's so much, it was always so much fun to watch when I've seen it on reruns, pay the guy, you know, I, again, the, the fact that it's changed hands so many times, I think magic Johnson at one point owned the rights or his company owned the rights to it. You know, that scream at the beginning, it's so iconic. It's so joyful. He was getting paid. You know, he's it's not like he's suing for $20 million. Pay the guy what he's, what he's deserved and let's move on. And yet none of you have done the scream. I'm disappointed in all of you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Super Bowl Sunday is right around the corner, and one celeb is pretty, pretty embarrassed about a really funny ad he took part in, Rich. I'm doing the Larry. Come on, don't you recognize the Larry when he's looking? Comes across great on audio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's you need a pair of glasses, Rich. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the great Super Bowl commercials of all time, in my opinion, was this crypto commercial Larry did couple of years ago. Um, and uh, he, along with many other celebrities, were sued in the wake of uh, the cryptocurrency debacle. Um, and the allegation is that not only was he, you know, endorsing this product, but he was getting, uh, you know, his, his deal was to benefit and profit from it. And he should have disclosed that. Um, and now he is admitting that, uh, um, you know, perhaps he should not have done the ad. Um, uh, so I don't know, Tina. I mean, it's hard to get your head around the idea that a celebrity endorser can be sued for being in a commercial, right? As if they're doing anything but just reading a few lines and taking a paycheck. It's a little more in depth when you're dealing with this crypto uh, situation. But at the end of the day, I mean, should we hold 
um, celebrities like Tom Brady or Giselle or Larry David here responsible for endorsing things? Um, I actually am of the opinion that, I mean, obviously it depends on the facts, but I do think that if folks endorse certain products that, or they're thinking about it, that it, the duty is on them to be sure that what they are saying is true. Because if they say anything that could be considered a claim, particularly an express claim, I do think that the whole reason to hire somebody to endorse a product, especially a famous person, is because the belief is that the person or the company that's hiring them is is going to have sway um, in influencing purchasers. And so I do think that depending on the circumstances um, that folks that do endorsements could really be putting themselves in a tough spot if what they're saying isn't true. You know, that back in the day, like um, Gary Cooper and Clark Gable, they would all endorse cigarettes as being great for your health, right? If you were smoking because you thought it was good for your health because Clark Gable said so, then you're dumb. Uh, similarly, if you think that you should get a reverse mortgage because Magnum PI is telling you to, because he really <laughs> believes in it, that's on you, caveat emptor, right? Let the buyer beware. I mean, I, I get what you're saying, Tina, but, you know, do your homework as a consumer, uh, as an investor. Uh, that's on you to determine what's right and wrong and what's good or bad, not based on what a celebrity says in a 30-second ad. I don't know. Gabe, what are you well, saying? Any claims, though, Rich? I mean, as I said, it's all a matter of sort of, you know, what exactly is being said. But if you have a celebrity there making claims like those infamous infomercials that some of these celebrities do where they start actually go beyond puffery, I, I think that's a problem. Yeah, there is a legal standard there and, and there is some merit to that. But again, at the end of the day, they're actors, right? They're paid to act in TV shows and to sell a product, uh, not know the intricacies of that product. That's my perspective. Gabe, Matt, where do you guys stand on that? I mean, I got to run to the store to return my Wilford Brimley oatmeal, but uh, <laughs> I think not to take this one. The right thing to do. I, I, I feel like in today's age, we've kind of, as consumers, we've kind of disconnected ourselves from the celebrity endorser and the, the merits of the product. I think we all know that celebrities get paid to endorse influencers. If you're scrolling Instagram or whatever, or influencing, you know, whatever the, the tummy tea is uh, of the week. Um, and I think... I actually was uh, another Tom Brady uh, spot recently when uh, Subway, I think, had amassed all these athletes, you know, for, for their commercials. And Tom Brady was talking about the Subway sub and, and Steph Curry goes, do you even eat bread? And he's like, no, it's a commercial. And it's like, no, I think we've disassociated ourselves with the celebrity getting a paycheck to their their genuine beliefs about the integrity of the product. All right. Well, let's go around the horn and end off with our favorite celebrity endorsers favorite celebrity commercial of all time what's what's your favorite celebrity commercial or endorser of all time besides the ones we've talked about today ryan burrow let's start with you he was i really and and speaking of the super bowl do you guys remember the the betty white snickers ad oh yeah the, hangry, hangry, the original hangry one yeah the original hangry one and and, and the way she's just so sharp and come back uh oh, i watched it again today it's hilarious that was great. That was awesome. Tina, any favorite celebrity endorsers over the years? Um, Super Bowl or otherwise? I just remember as a kid, I mean, there have there been a lot of them, but just off the top of my head, I'd say not necessarily favorite, but one of the more memorable ones was the Jacksons um, with Pepsi mm -hmm. back in the 80s when they were when they got back together and they were doing that victory tour. 
right before Michael Jackson caught his hair on fire during a Pepsi. Yeah, exactly. That was when he had a full head of hair. That's a good one. I go old school. I love Gabe, uh, the old uh, Miller Lite commercials that was stocked with celebrities. It was John Madden was always the lead and John Madden would come bursting through a wall like the Kool-Aid guy. So those were really Bubba Smith was in it. Dick Butkus. Uh, it was like uh, it was like a Burt Reynolds movie of uh, of commercials. It was a lot of great seventies athletes and, and actors. But Gabe, what about your era? Any favorite? Yeah, celebrities? I mean, I, I think I got to keep it since this is a Chicago based show in the Chicago realm. So it's probably a tie between the uh, the Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, McDonald's commercials mm. where they're taking shots off of the I don't know the Dan Ryan or the Sears Tower or whatever it was. Play you for it. Yep. Uh, amazing, amazing commercials, and also the uh, I want to say this was for Nike. I'm now forgetting the product, but the Mars Blackman Spike Lee directed uh, commercials uh, with Michael Jordan. I think he did a few others that down. Gotta was, be the shoes. It's gotta, gotta be, be exactly, exactly. So, so um, I think those are probably the two, two, the two best, and I guess I would love to see them uh, again with some more modern uh, athletes. Matt, the floor is yours. Favorite celebrity endorser over the years? Well, I'll say number two has got to be again Wilford Brimley. Check your blood sugar. And check it often. Uh, that that I I can't tell you how often I think about that. Uh, but then uh, also keeping it with Michael Jordan, the the one where like the the older version of Michael Jordan was playing one on one with the younger version of Michael Ooh, Jordan. Yeah. You know, kind of the AI mixture of the two. I love that one as well. That was cool. No one said, be like Mike, the famous Gatorade jingle. And Wilford Brimley, by the way, a man who looked the exact same when he was 20 and yep. 85. He was literally born the way he looked when he died. Unusual scientific fact. <laughs> Matt and Gabe, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for That'll do it for the latest thanks installment of the Legal Face-Off podcast. Special thanks to Professor Gerard Maglioka with Marymount University Law School, Indiana University Law Professor Justin Levitt, Law Professor and Author Deborah Denno, Intellectual Property Law Professor Shuba Ghosh, KPM Partner Matt Liller, and Executive Director of Fix the Court, Gabe Roth. Bertina Martini, Rich Lenkoff, Lisa Stiegel, I'm Ryan Burrow. Thanks for joining us on Legal Face-Off on WGN. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Cover in sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.